Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, this is Business of Design. I'm Kimberly Selden and I'm a practicing interior design professional just like you. Practicing. That's what we do in yoga. I never show up at yoga and expect I'm going to levitate like others in the classroom seem to be able to do. Instead, I remind myself that A, it's amazing that I just showed up. And B, hitting that mat is my opportunity to make baby improvements to how I practice yoga. I'm not necessarily going to go from A to Z in one session. But I can make these micro adjustments, which over time lead to huge results. Too often, I think we're so hard on ourselves when it comes to making improvement in our business. I will give myself the most hateful list of to-do things, and then I will beat myself up because I didn't accomplish it. I'm trying to be more gentle with myself in 2019. I hope you will too. And by the way, that is not an excuse not to get busy and make important changes in your business. It's really more about having a realistic idea of what you can accomplish. And make sure you're giving yourself credit for all the amazing strengths and talents you already have and you may be taking for granted. I was thinking about that the other day as I was struggling to do even the most basic positions for whatever reason, I wasn't having my best workout. And I realized like I'm so kind to myself in yoga. I show up, I put myself on the mat. Some days are great and I'm all bendy and twisty and I think I'm 25 again. And other days I feel like I'm 109 and I can't even do the simplest things. And yet when it comes to my business, I somehow think I'm supposed to be perfect at it all the time rather than learning or making micro adjustments that are going to help me feel stronger in the days ahead. The conversation we're going to have in this podcast is extremely meaningful for me. I met Sherry Millian when I was in Houston at a business of design meeting, and she so courageously shared that she took a break from her interior design practice to advocate for her daughter, Megan, who has Down syndrome. She had an interior design practice before that, which she loves, and she'll tell you about that, but realized she needed to take this time off to focus her attention on Megan. And I think that the fact that she loved her business so much and yet still took time off it to focus on Megan makes that sacrifice even greater. And no doubt the rewards have been many and she's got no misgivings about having made that choice. But what she's learned as an advocate for her daughter, Megan, I think is so helpful in terms of running an interior design business. So I'm going to let Sherry tell you all of those good things in her own words, because she is just as lovely as you might imagine. Let me tell you a little bit about Sherry Millian. She is a principal designer of Terra Vista Interior Design Group in Spring, Texas. She graduated from Oklahoma State U with a Bachelor of Arts in Human Environmental Sciences. That was in 1996. And since then, she has worked for George Cameron Nash, Walker Zanger, Ethan Allen, and a couple of independent interior designers. And that's before she started her own firm in 2002. 
In 2010, she realized she needed to make a choice between a thriving interior design practice and spending the time she really needed to spend advocating for her daughter, Megan. And she did what a lot of moms will do. She was able to make a decision to put her own well-being aside and focus on something that was more important. And when I met Sherry in Houston, she shared this with the group, as I said, but she talked about how learning to communicate effectively and advocate for her daughter was really informing her behavior on her job sites today. And those skills, I think, are so critically important. Sherry identified six different things she learned as an advocate that she believes will improve the experience of working with you as an interior design professional. I'll tell you what those six things are quickly, but Sherry will go into some depth. And also, if you want that list, it will be at businessofdesign.com in the show notes. Number one, you do not have to respond to everything. You can pick and choose what you are going to tackle. You can pick and choose what you need to reply directly to, and you can ignore some things. Number two, ask questions. Don't mistake silence for agreement. Number three, the world doesn't revolve around you. You may have to listen to someone else's point of view, and you might have to make some compromises. Number four, if it's not written, it was never said. Number five, enter into a conversation with the intention to listen more than to be heard. And number six, meet people where they are, not where you think they should be. I'm very grateful for the conversation I had with Sherry. It really filled me up. And I'm very grateful that you're here as well. Let's check in with Cheryl. Episode 91, Cheryl. Can you believe it? And here come the holidays. You ready? I know that year actually went by really fast. I know, I know. And we are flat out busy end of year, which is unusual for us because we have made some big promises in terms of new content that's coming to businessofdesign.com. December, January has really been crunch time. We're working on um, a long list of courses for 2019 and getting that content out there. And it's so great because most of the courses that we're doing have been um, requested directly by our members. Yeah, that's a big switch, right? That's pretty exciting. I don't think we anticipated any of this in 2004 when we got started on this journey. So thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. What do we have coming up in the new year? We'll be uh, launching the new year with an Instagram podcast, but also uh, you'll be doing some work on your personal Instagram account for Kimberly Selden Design Group. Make sure you're following us at Design Is My Business. Go along with the with the process and start growing your Instagram. Um, and then we also have group coaching. Our next session's coming up on January 23rd. So we'll be able to connect with all of our um, members then and see what their plans are for 2019. The last group coaching call we did, I was exhausted. They were some pretty intense questions. Um, yeah. People are digging deep now. It's kind of cool because I remember when we started, they were asking some basic things that, that uh, we answered for about a decade. And now people have moved beyond. It's pretty cool. 
Well, a lot of, and what we'll be fo- focusing on for a lot of the courses as well, so many of our members, they've implemented the 15 steps, um, you know, businesses running like clockwork, and now they're ready to take it to the next level, scale their offices, start hiring employees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some are getting into commercial work and expanding projects. Um, so sort of taking your business to the next level is a big focus for 2019. All right. I'm ready if you are. Have a great Bye. holiday. I guess I'll, I'll see you before then. Yes, for sure. Take okay, care. Bye. Before we jump into the episode, let me tell you that this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Business of Home, the daily media of record for interior design professionals. If you want to stay connected and competitive in the home world, join their new membership community, Business of Home Insider. As a member, designers and makers have access to breaking news and in-depth business analysis events, a podcast, and the industry's best job board. Become a Business of Home insider today by going to businessofhome.com backslash B-O-H insider. And thank you as well, Business of Home, for including me on a recent article you did about business coaching in the interior design world. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses plus Kimberly Selden as your mentor and guide. Unlike traditional coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. of design meeting about your choice to advocate for your daughter in a more full-time way, which meant putting your career aside and stepping up to do this important work. So tell us a little bit about that period in your life. Well, my daughter has Down syndrome. She's 15. Um, I don't know how you want me to go about it, but just to be, I mean, completely honest and out there. um, I was very selfish for many years and did not listen to God's voice in my head that kept telling me she wasn't getting what she needed because I was getting all my fulfillment from my business. And we had a retail store in the Woodlands and the lease came up after five years. And I just tell everybody, I got this booming voice in my head that said, nope, you can't have it anymore. It's not time. So um, my husband and I had to make the decision to close the store and advocate for Megan. Um, I thought that I could do both. I thought that I could close the store, but still have the design business out of my home. So I went from interiors of distinction to Millian design studio. Um, And I realized I wasn't doing either one of them justice by trying to spread myself thin for both. So I let the business go and I started doing child advocacy for Megan full time. And that was a huge learning experience. So 
you know, you said that you were being selfish. And I wonder if another way of looking at that is you were trying to do everything all at the same time, right? Like, I mean, we're so often told that we can have it all. We can do it all. And you probably were trying to juggle all those balls at the same time. So maybe you're too harsh on yourself there. (laughs) Well, I think a little bit of both, honestly. I mean, I, I, I like to be honest and accountable for myself as well. And I did, I wanted to be the mother that had it all, but also, honestly, I think I knew in the back of my head, I just was like, they're not, they're not being honest with me. They're not giving her what she needs, but I didn't want to give up my business. I didn't want to give that away and go and just do that full time and not have design in my life. And so I, I think it was both. I wanted to, I thought I could do both and be all to everybody, but, um, like I said, and I also, I just, you know, I didn't want to let it go. I just, and, and I was scared of conflict. You know, I (laughs) going up against a school district, you know, a big government school district is scary. And I was very shy and, um, being a designer helped me get out of it, but scared me to death and I didn't want to do it. (laughs) I'll be honest. Well, the fact that you love your interior design business and you didn't want to give that up, I think makes your sacrifice even greater. So I'm sure there's no regrets and you did the right thing for Megan. So let's talk then about some of the skills you had to uncover maybe and dust off that made you an effective advocate and how you can use those skills today in your business. I think... One of the things that I think really hit home with me was one of my clients was a speech pathologist or a speech therapist, and she did a method that a lot of others didn't do. And so she kind of joined me on this journey of helping to advocate for Megan. And I remember the first meeting we went to, and when we left the meeting, she turned around and she looked at me and she said, who was that person? And why wasn't that person my designer? She goes, I don't know who that was, but she had a voice and she spoke up. And I think I was just like, wow. You know, I think that really just hit me. I want to ask you a question right there then, because I think about this a lot. It's very easy. For example, it's really easy for me to ask for money if I'm raising funds for a good cause, but it was very hard for me to ask for money for interior design services. So somewhere in my mind, I decided that one had value and one somehow didn't have value. And I wonder if that was a little bit of what happened for you. Like the stakes were really high where Megan was concerned, but maybe you didn't feel those same high stakes running your business. I don't know. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you were obviously you're the same person. Yeah, no, I I agree with you completely. And it wasn't the only client that told me that I had another client when I was doing a conference room for her in the um, in the summertime. And we had a worker in there who I made the mistake of saying, okay, well, he wants to have a, a construction business. And he says he can do it. And he's been my faux finisher forever. But he's telling me, you know, over the past couple of years, he's got this experience. So I put him on the job and he didn't, and he did not do a good job at all. And I was embarrassed and I, I wanted to please him and I wanted to please her. And in the effect, I didn't please 
anybody, as we all know that before. And she, again, said the same thing to me when she would ask about Megan and how I was dealing with Megan. And she'd go, I wish you were that passionate about my project. Wow. And I wonder, is it that you weren't passionate or is it that there's a certain decisiveness that happens when you're advocating for your child, at least my experience advocating my son, advocating for my son, I'm the voice. I am his one and only bit of protection in the world. So I have no choice, but I have to own these decisions and I have to be very clear about what I want to happen where I would go into clients and I'd be like, well, we could do this or we could do this or we could do this. And I wasn't giving the clients the benefit of me being the one decision maker, right? Which I think they kind of want. Does that resonate at all? Yes. Oh, I think it's, I think it's completely, I think both of them were saying the exact same thing to me. It's like, why couldn't you be this, you know, I want to say forceful, but assertive, you know, with us, either when we were trying to make a decision and you needed to guide us in that particular way, or why couldn't you be that assertive with the contractor over here on my behalf, you know, and really say, this is what needs to be done. And this is how you need to do it. And, and I wasn't, I was trying to, because he had been my friend for so long. And I think that was my first mistake is, you know, I put a friendship before the job. And she was, they were both kind of, I think, just telling me, you know, you need to, this is you, you can do it. We want you to do the same thing for us, for your business. And that really, yeah, that was like, oh, it is okay. It is okay for me to be strong. And it is okay for me to say, yes, this is what you need to do. This is how it's need to be done. And, you know, I need to be your advocate, you know, just like I'm an advocate for Megan. Wow. Okay. I'm tempted to go and ask you how that's translating into your business now, but I'm afraid I'm going to miss more of what you learned during your journey. So we'll circle back to that. So that's one thing you learned, um, that it, that being assertive paid off in terms of being a child advocate, an advocate for your child, and therefore being assertive might also pay off in your business. Yes. What else did you discover? Oh, well, I think I kind of told you kind of six points and I don't know where to start, but um, one of them, let's see, one of the first ones was also what um, one of my clients had told me and she goes, if you want to win the war, you don't have to win every battle. And basically, you know, and what she was kind of saying was that whole, you don't have to respond to everything that somebody tells you. You don't have to jump at the bait. You don't have to, you know, just if they say something that's meant to get under your skin, you don't have to respond to that. You let that one go um, because it's not going to serve you and it's not going to serve them. So I really had to learn that. And I've had to remember that. We all have to remember that when we read an email or a client says something to us, right? It's like, okay, I don't, I don't have to take that. I don't have to just answered that I can move on to something else and just, you know, let that one go. Is it picking and choosing your battles, that kind of thing where you're like, okay, uh, of the five things I need for Megan, uh, that particular thing isn't one of the priorities. So I'm going to, I'm going to let go of that one in order to focus on something that's a priority. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, it was like with her, it was speech. They, they weren't going to give her the proper speech. And my husband was upset about it. And I said, well, that's, we know they can't do it. So we don't fight that battle. We fight something else that's more important. Let them have that battle. Let them feel like they've achieved something and they've won a battle. So then we can move on, you know, because you can't just roll right over somebody in order to get what you want. You both have to compromise. You both have to give and take. And not everything is important at the end of the day. You have to choose. Does diplomacy come into this at all? Oh, yes. I really had to learn how to give them an out. So that's one thing I learned in my advocacy books is you know, you have to always be reasonable and you always need to try and not put them in a corner. Make sure that they have an out to oh. bow out gracefully of something. Allow someone to save face. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because if you make them wrong to such a degree that they despise you, the person who ultimately loses is Megan. And that's true in our in our biz, in our dealings with trades as well, right? If I if I make my trade so small and inferior in front of the client, the client eventually suffers because that trade will push back in some way that I may or may not be able to control. Exactly. Exactly. And in the same way with the client too, you know, the client's going to say some things to you that maybe out of anger they don't mean. Um so sometimes you just have to Pretend you didn't hear it and just let that one go. So again, they can save face too, you know, because they're they're not going to want to come back to you and work with you if they feel embarrassed by something they've done or something they've said. So that's something I've really tried to remember as well. I've gotten myself in trouble in the past by ignoring a comment that a client said and, you know, kind of pretending it didn't happen and ignoring it. So how do I know when I need to verify what the client actually means. Because I know I hear something from a client in a situation that feels somewhat contentious to me. I can make up a story about what they mean. And I've discovered that I'm not always right about the story I make up. And so I go down this path I don't even need to go down. So what's the technique then for discovering whether or not you need to check in on something someone has said to you? I try and I, in the course of a conversation, like one, this, I had a client just recently who we were, um, we, we suggested a, a specified a grass cloth wallpaper. And during the presentation, um, he had given two thumbs up. Um, but then he didn't remember that after the conversation. And he wasn't necessarily being, he, well, he wasn't meaning it in a, in a bad way, but Sometimes he's nervous because they've been burned by by contractors in the past and, and trades in the past. And so they're very, very nervous and wary of the of the process. And so he was like, well, he said a couple of times, well, this wallpaper that you're just kind of, you know, forcing on us or this or that or the other. And so the first couple of times I just kind of moved past it and addressed other parts of the conversation. And I didn't address it to see if, OK, he's just trying to get something out and be a little nervous and seeing if I'm going to respond or what I'm going to do, take the bait. And I didn't. And so I think in that end, it's like, okay, just go over and address all the other points that are, that do need, do need to be addressed. But then I did end up having to address it because he said it a third time. And so then I just kind of looked at him and I said, you are right. I am shoving down your throat 
the wallpaper that you gave me two thumbs up on at the meeting and you're gonna love it. And he just laughed, you know, and he was like, yes, touche, you're right, you know, and then everything, you know, was fine. That was a but, great way to handle that, by the way. Thank you. I don't yeah. know that I would have thought of that, but that's a, that's a really good way to handle it. I mean, I suppose I don't like to let things go three times. Um, I might ask a question. Oh, David, are you feeling forced into grass cloth? Let's talk about that. But using humor, I think, is really good. <laughs> if you have that in your toolkit, that's a really good one. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I know that when it, I've worked with him now for a few months and I understand that none of it's coming from a malicious place or a, a mean place or he's just, he and himself is feeling nervous and uncomfortable. And so part of it, I want to try and let him get out of his system so that maybe he can move past it. But yeah, then once I hear it, then a couple times I was like, okay, this is a concern. This is really worrying him. Mm -hmm. And I just need to remind him one that he loved it. And two, you know, I'm not, I'm not forcing it. This was agreed upon and you're going to love it. It's going to be okay. But I didn't, like I said, I didn't want him to feel embarrassed. So I figured just to make a joke about it so he could, okay. Yeah. It's two things are running through my head. Number one, it, someone's intention is really important. If you understand the intentionality behind what somebody said, you can make allowances for them. He's nervous. He's scared. Grass cloth seems scary for him, right? Well. And then the second thing is when you have a child who has some special issue or need, even if it's just something temporary, you know, they've, they've got some something that's happened and you need to advocate for them, even for just a short period of time, doesn't it make these other decisions around decorating and grass cloth or not decorating seem ridiculous? Like, buddy, you need to chill out. It is just wallpaper. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. And you're right. And you're right. There are no design emergencies, no decorating emergencies, like I've heard you say. But, you know, I said, I try and remember it's their home, too. And they're just, it, it's so personal for what's business for us. It's so personal for them. And so to balance that tightrope is, you know, again, you don't want to just make them feel like their, their worries are trivial because to them, they're so important. Um, but also at the same time, making sure that we do put them in the proper perspective and, you know, at the end of the day, make sure that everybody feels heard and understood. One of the ways that you can make sure someone feels heard is to repeat back what you think they're saying to you, right? And I guess another way would be to ask questions. Are you good at asking questions when somebody throws something down? Yes. I'm good at asking questions if they throw it down or if they don't. Um, I think it's like it's another one of my points was don't let somebody silence don't assume that that means that they agree with you. Um, that's another thing I really learned in advocacy that they would use on, on me as a parent um, or even principals to this day will still, when I'm the one who will come up and have a voice um, because I'm one of the only parents who's willing to stand up and say, hey, I have a question. I may not agree with this. And they say, well, all the other parents are fine with it. They don't have a problem with it. And I'm sitting there going, don't mistake silence, you know, for agreeing. There could be ambivalence. There could be lack of time. There could be, you know, scared 
to, you know, intimidation. I said, don't take silence as that. And I try to remember that myself and really try to read the client and listen to the client to what they are saying. And, and that goes to just not just listening to words, but you need to be able to listen to people's words without wanting to answer right away. You know, I think so many of us sit there and we want to be heard in a conversation and we want to make sure that we're agreed with and that our point is right, that we, we forget to hear the other person's point of view or even if and it's either their words or their body language, but they'll tell you if you're really paying attention, they're going to tell you that there's something wrong, that they're not comfortable with it. And so I, I just, I ask questions. I'll look at them and I'll be like, you don't, you don't look quite like you're quite ready for this, or you're not sure, or you just, you know, I don't feel like you're there. And I'll double check and triple check if I have to sometimes if I just get that feeling from them. And usually I'm right. Usually there's something that they've been afraid to say or talk about. Or if they, you know, I go in there, the same client, I said, you know, we've talked about media. What do you want from your media? Or this is what we're going to do. Or this is what we've agreed on and want to make sure we're on the same page. And how are you going to do this? And how do you plan to bring someone in if it's not me? And I asked him all the questions. I said, because right now, if I'm not the hard person asking you the hard questions right now, then we're going to get down the road and they won't have been answered and you won't know what you want to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, that rule about silence, don't mistake silence for agreement. That's, that's really important because sometimes I can speak really quickly and I can just barrel through my agenda and I do need to be aware actively listening and watching the client sitting across from me to make sure that they're on board as well. I wonder if, too, how that works in the opposite direction. When clients say things and we're silent, are we making them falsely understand that we agree with them? Like we kind of owe it to our clients to speak up and say we don't agree about one thing or another, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't serve anybody to be quiet. It doesn't serve anybody, you know, to avoid the elephant in the room. Um, when you do, it just makes things worse. So I definitely, you know, you need to make sure that you get all you can out of your client, make sure you ask all the questions that you can, um, really make sure that they understand, like you said, not only repeat back, what you've heard them say, but maybe just kind of at the end of the presentation, I'll ask them, I, you know, like, I'll try to remember to ask them. I don't always, but you know, it's like, you know, do you agree with everything? Do you have any questions? Do you understand how maybe this is going to work? Um, do you just, yeah. Do you understand what, what it is we're talking about so that you don't come back afterwards and say, well, I was, you know, too intimidated because you're the designer to, to say that I don't agree with you or I don't understand. I didn't want to look foolish or like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So we sort of touched on silent agreement. (laughs) The fact that someone being silent doesn't necessarily mean you have agreement. One of the points you brought up, which is just so true, has to do with written agreement. So talk about that. One of the most important things I've learned through advocating for Megan, if it is not written, it is not said. Um, so I got to a point for a while where I would not even have a phone conversation with the school or with the administration 
it had to be written down so that I knew that everybody was in agreement. Um, and so now that's kind of one thing that I try and do in, say, my um, weekly project reports that I send out is I'll, I'll try and regurgitate um, everything we've agreed on that week. We just had a, a chest for a, a project that wasn't, it's not going to come in now till April. It was in stock when we ordered it, but they didn't give it to us. And so now it's on back order. And so I called the client and we talked about it and we agreed, yes, we would rather wait for the right piece to come in. It's not a replaceable piece. And so, but that was on the phone. That was a phone conversation. And so I sent on the Friday status report, I said, you know, and on this date, we talked about, you know, this piece is going to be back ordered until such and such a date. And the clients agreed that they wanted to wait for the chest. And so just to make sure that whatever's in a phone conversation is still written down somewhere. That is invaluable advice when you're having those conversations or even on the job site, you're standing and the client shows up, they're not supposed to be home and suddenly you're talking about five things. Make a quick note about those five things and include them in your update for the week and make sure it's written clearly what everybody agrees with. And then if the client says, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Great. Now you haven't gone forward and done something that's not fixable, right? I mean, the earlier you can catch those things, the better. Oh, right, exactly. I mean, it's and it's yes, you have a written process, but again, that written process is isn't meant to go back and say, well, you said, or I told you, you said, or this is what happened. It's not meant to, you know, nail them down per se. I mean, unless sometimes that needs to be done, but it's not meant to be used for that. But it is, like you said, it's meant to make sure we're all on the same page. Because what someone says verbally to you, you may process it as a different way as well. They may not have understood it the same way. Mm-hmm. I love that. Another point you had on there, which I thought was really interesting, is to meet people where they are or meet them where they're at, not where you want them to be. That probably translates into your interior design business really effectively because some people are super savvy and they've hired five designers and you're the sixth one and they know how it works. And other people are terrified of grass cloth and need a lot more handholding. Right. Oh, it, it does. It's, it's just so important, I think, to remember, too, that, like I said, not everybody thinks the way you do, processes the same way you do, agrees with everything that you do and see things the way you do. So you need to really make sure that you're able to hear them and see them where they are. Or if something is on back order and they're upset, let them be upset allow them to be upset. Um, and again, like you said, to repeat back sometimes what they have said. So again, they feel like you do see them and you do hear them and they're, where they are is acknowledged and how they feel is acknowledged because it makes just a huge, huge difference. I can, I can go back and say, you know, that's really the turning point with the school is we were just at odds for years. And I sat down with them and I said, can we have an off the record meeting? Because we're going to have to do this for seven more years and we can't keep doing wow. this, mm-hmm. you know? And so I was like, let's just sit down and hear each other. And, you know, they were like, well, this is what we hear you say when you say this. And I was like, well, this is what I hear you say when you say this. And once we kind of all got out what we heard from each other and not what we assumed was there, it made things so much easier and so much clearer. I said, you don't, you don't have to agree with where they are. You don't have to like 
where that person is. Um, but to understand where they are is really the first step in being able to come to a solution. So just as long as everybody knows where everybody is, it's so much easier. I think I, I have a dream for the world, and that is that all politicians would be mothers who advocate for children, because I think we would be so much further ahead, right? I mean, the things you're talking about are things that we don't seem to be able to do sometimes politically, cooperate, listen to each other, agree to coordinate efforts, even if sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Like, there's just so much here that's invaluable. Do you do you feel empowered by these messages that you've learned the hard way in your business today? I do. I do. It's really helped me in so many ways. I mean, advocating for Megan, I think I'd mentioned to you at one point, made me grow up. It really made me stop and sit back and go, you know, you've, you can, we all seem to, I think not all, but many times we communicate in a, in a selfish way. We don't communicate, like I said, to really try and hear the other person and to, and to be present in that conversation. Our goal is simply just to bulldoze right on through our own message. And it's really very selfish. Um, and I really had to learn that because in many ways, what I was doing wasn't effective for Megan. It might have been getting some things that we wanted done. But after we sat down and listened to each other and heard each other, it just make, made all the difference in the world. And they weren't the enemy anymore. You know, we became friends and, you know, we I've been to one of their houses and helped them with design. And and so it's just it. it it's eye-opening and it's enlightening and it really makes things so much better and so much less stressful if you're willing to, to just sit back and listen to the other person and try and understand them and make sure that that's important to them. Do you set an intention for yourself when you go into one of these meetings in advance, you know, like my job today is to only accomplish this one thing and everything else can go to the side. I don't think so. I don't think all the time, but definitely if, if something really big, I think has happened. Yes. Yeah, such as, you know, if we have a problem, we had a problem with paint on, on one of the projects and it, uh, the, the contractor wasn't slowing down. He wanted to get the job done and he wasn't slowing down and, and getting it done properly. So he had to come back and do it. So again, I had to go in, like you said, and just make sure that with the client and with the contractor that I made sure they both were heard, that they both felt, you know, that they were being listened to. But you also have to, again, be very strong with both of them. You know, with the client, I had to make sure they understood, look, my job isn't to badmouth my contractor. You know, my job is to all of us be on the same team and figure out, you know, how I'm going to get this job done for you. And I will get it done for you. And the job with, with the, with the builder or the contractor was to say, okay, listen, we need to step back. We need to slow down. We need to make sure we get this right because the client feels like this isn't as important a job to you. So we need to make sure they understand that it is, and we do it right. So I think you've just crystallized something for me, and it has to do with 
the fact that when I'm advocating for my son, and he's a grown man now, so I'm, I'm not having to do the advocacy anymore at the moment, but I've had uh, members of my family in the hospital, and I definitely have to advocate for that. Um, but when I'm advocating for someone I love in a situation like that, against a school, against a hospital, my one and only priority is that person I'm advocating for. But when I am the interior design professional in someone's home, it gets tricky because I'm advocating for the client, but sometimes I'm also advocating for the trades. That's why our job, I think, is so hard. Yes, I agree. Oh, I agree completely because sometimes I think the client is so upset and they really want you to be so much on their side and oh, this person just really shouldn't have done this. And why did they do this? And, and, and you're like, okay, you need to you know, really balance that, you know, make sure they're heard, but also make sure they understand, hey, we're working with humans. You know, these things are going to happen. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get it done right for you. We're going to get it done right for you, you know, but we have to, you know, going around and, and making sure that one person gets thrown under, under the bus to make the other person happy isn't going to, isn't going to solve the problem. So empathy helps though, right? Like it's, it sounds like you're really comfortable saying to like, I'm super comfortable saying to my clients that I would feel lousy about that too. I hate yeah. that that's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. I, this first job I've really had to learn to implement. This is the first probably big job, the big whole house job I've had since going back. And I've really learned a lot of the, how to use a lot of the tools with the school district now and using them with the client and remembering them. And um, because it can, I think, throw you for a loop when you learn, say, these tools or these methods in one arena of your life. And then all of a sudden, in another arena of your life, which is completely different, you need to figure out how to implement them there as well, because it's different. And sometimes you're like, oh, well, wait, I wasn't expecting that here. So how do I move this from this part over to this part? Um, And they all translate the same way. But again, you're talking to different people and you're having to learn the different personalities that are involved. And communicating and advocating with one personality is a completely different process than doing it with another personality. So that's another, that's another tricky skill to learn. Or communicating and advocating for, with somebody who is reasonable versus somebody who is unreasonable. That's tricky. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, and sometimes those unreasonable people, you just, like you said, you kind of need to learn is it them being unreasonable or is it them being scared about something else that's coming back that way? And if they're scared or they're nervous, then you can work with that. But if they're just being unreasonable and there's no working with them, then you kind of have to figure out a way to, is this, is this working for you? You know, is this something that I can work with and figure out a solution or do we maybe need to find a way to, move on to another project and let them know that maybe you're not the right designer for them. Using these skills that you have discovered or uncovered or polished up while you're advocating for Megan, and now you've returned to your interior design practice, what do you see as being the big changes you are able to provide to your clients now versus then? 
it really just um, having a stronger voice, being more, um, being stronger in my design decisions. I used to, it has helped me to have that one design um, concept for them and have the backup, but have that one concept because I used to go in kind of like you said you used to do and you'd have all these choices and just give it to them. And I wasn't, you know, assertive and I wasn't able to say, oh, well, I think this is definitely the one. I'd be like, well, which one do you like? Which ones do you not like? And let's do this and go through that process. And I think it's just helped me to find a voice, a stronger voice in my business to help to guide them in the right way, because that's what they came to me for. They didn't come to me to help them narrow down the process. They came to me to help them tell them what is the process. Yeah, so true. It's so, so true. But it requires a tremendous amount of discipline and courage to pick one solution and say, this is the one you should do. Because if you're wrong, 100% of the responsibility is going to rest on your shoulders. Yes. (laughs) I know why we don't want to do it, but, you know, and... And also, I mean, you're seven years older, um, so you've you've become wiser in terms of just general living experience, right? I the things I would have gone crazy at in my twenties, I'm not going to go crazy at in my fifties because I know they don't matter. You know, other things are really important. This is not important. We're going to get it fixed. Oh, exactly. I mean, I think the two biggest things I know when I first came back to the business, I was like, I'm not going to do this if I'm not going to make any money. Um, Because before I was terrible at saying no, I was terrible at telling them if they didn't have the proper budget, that they didn't have the proper budget because I wanted to please them. I wanted to get the job done for them. And I was scared I wouldn't have another job afterwards. So I just didn't know how to say no. And I think that's something else that the clients were telling me is you just didn't know how to say no before. And now you have a voice. You're able to say, that's not going to work. That's not the right solution no, we're not going to do this. Or yes, absolutely. That's great. And we can do it and mean it. I think that enabled to do that, I'm like, okay, now I understand to do that. I have to have the proper payment, the proper fees in place so that I can make a profit. If I don't have a profit, I can't allow myself. I don't feel like, I think that's why I didn't have the, I didn't have the money behind me um, in my account to be able to make those mistakes on my own. So I wanted, if I was going to make a mistake, that client was going to make this mistake right along with me was in my head. But then they got upset because I was the person they hired. So in the end, it all came down to me. It wasn't their fault. It was my fault. And so I decided if I'm going to do this again, I'm going to have the proper profit structure behind me so that I can make money and I can service them. And I think that comes with those seven years and that confidence and advocating for the school to be able to advocate for myself and for my business and telling them I've raised my rates. I'm raising, you know, this is what I charge for my product. And I charge this for the product because I need to be able to give you that service that you're looking for. And if I don't have the profit, I can't service you the way you want. And that's really, I've had, I've, you know, I've actually said that to a couple clients who've come back to me and they were just like, yeah, okay. You know, I mean, they were just so happy to hear me say that. Clients so. totally understand you need to make a profit. It's so funny how 
I felt somehow that I needed to not let them know I was making any money. And somehow that made me, I don't know, virtuous. Um, I think it, I think that's a really poor optics from the client perspective. If she's not making money, why is she doing this? Or if she's not making money here, where is she making money? Is she hiding where she's making money? Is she getting a kickback? Is there something I don't know about? When you really put it up front and say, here's my business model and this is how it works for me and my staff, et cetera. And the other thing is, you know, end of year comes along. I always make a point of telling clients, like, thank you so much for everything you've done for me and for everyone at the office this year, Cheryl bought a house and Kathy had a baby and, you know, just kind of updating them on the cool stuff that they are supporting. You know, it's not just giving the, you know, a wealthy decorator some cash, but actually supporting people in your community, which is really cool, right? Oh, I absolutely. I, I think it's very important. People want to feel like they're a part of something, right? You know, uh, that's another reason I was like, I need to, I need to, two things I wanted to do with the business is I wanted to help fund Megan's um, trust that we have to have. So in order to do that, I have to make money. You know, I can't not make money. And then also I would like to use some of the profit to go back and give to um, Disability Rights Texas who advocated, they're a nonprofit and helped us advocate for Megan and helped us get what we needed to done. And I could, we couldn't have done any of it without them. And so a, big thing for me to be able to give back. Well, I can't give back, you know, again, if we're not making a profit. And I think that's, I think that's just as important to your clients. And when they know, like you said, when they know that their money is going for these other things as well, it makes them feel good and feel like, you know, like you said, they're a part of, of not just their own growth and their own home, but as other people's growth and their lives as well. Wow. I really appreciate having this conversation. It reminds me that the work we do has repercussions far beyond beautiful living rooms, right? Yes, it does. I, I think it's important for all designers to remember that, you know, it's, that's really why I do what I do because I know after advocating and coming home, you feel, I felt judged. I felt just worn out and I felt you know, how can I keep doing this? But when I'm able to come home to a place where I feel welcomed and I feel like all my, you know, it's my sanctuary. It's my place of, of rest and strength. And so I think it's important for people to have that. And that's one thing that's important for me now is that I'm able to go back out and give other people that feeling, that place that they can come home to. So we need to remember we do that. Sherry, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us. I want to I want to ask you two things. I want to ask you how is Megan doing today? And then I want to ask you to end the episode with design intervention, something you think is indispensable for anyone listening. So let's hear about Megan. What is she like as a 15-year-old? Oh, Megan is your typical stubborn, ornery teenager who talks back every time she can. You know, she's just so funny. I remember one time she was upstairs in her room. She'd gotten in trouble, and I looked upstairs. She came out, and she goes, I'm bored. I said, well, sorry, you're in your room, and you have 30 more minutes in your room. She goes, well, I'm bored, and it's all your fault. <laughs> no, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You can go back to your room. Um, 
she's she's just she's wonderful she's she's she is you know going through that process and i have to remember as a mother too you know that going into high school kids are finding themselves and she's going through a lonely process right now of her friends kind of trying to finding themselves and forgetting about her and so i'm trying to help her navigate that and figure out the best way to do that and so we're, you know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all a learning process every day with your kid, no matter whether they have a disability or not. I think sometimes when your kid has a disability, you tend to think that you're the only one and it's, it's so much more magnified. And I have to sit back and really remind myself, Hey, other mothers have, have the same concerns and the same struggles, you know, just because she has a disability that actually makes her, you know, what she's experiencing makes her more like others than you know, than unlike others. So. so true. Gosh, it's so true. And I've, I found in my own life, it's made me so compassionate about the struggles other people have with their children, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It makes you a lot less, um, I guess, internalized. You really see others and what they're going through. And you're, like you said, you're more, you have more empathy for them, more compassion for what's going on. And I think as um, design intervention, I think my biggest thing is just remember that you have a voice and it's okay to have a voice. You know, don't be scared of, of who you are and what you think you have to say to the world because you'd be surprised who really does want to hear it, who, who yeah, who does want to hear it. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. But yeah, who so many people want to hear what you have to say and you may think it's not important or you may think that they're going to make fun of you or they're going to judge you. But at the end of the day, it's so important for you and for your own self-worth as not just a designer, but as a person as a whole to really stand up and be counted and to be heard and to, but to do it with respect and to make sure you do it with the best of intentions and kind of just take a minute and think about it before you actually say it. Mm -hmm. I find too, if I'm struggling with the decision, it helps me to think if this were my house, what would I do? Because sometimes you have two decisions. You have to make a choice between two things that both aren't great for whatever reason. Like there's just a situation and you can put the outlet here or there. Neither one's perfect. Uh, If it were my house, this is what I would do. That helps me a lot. Just kind of get to the decision. Right. I remember, I remember you said that a few podcasts back, what was it that, you know, sometimes the client just wants you to make a decision and you may not even be sure it may not matter which, which rug they put or which fabric they choose. Either one is just fine, but make a decision and go with it. Don't him and haw. And that's really helped me to remember to do that. I think this conversation has been really good for me. So thank you personally. And I bet you a lot of listeners are saying right on, I'm going to apply these principles that you've learned in this very difficult way to my business today and Sherry, your six points. We will also put at businessofdesign.com. So if anybody wants to go back and review them or pin them up on your wall for the next few weeks, so you can think about them, that would be great. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I, I hope I did. I hope I helped somebody out there. I want to pay it forward. You have been such a huge help to me and given me so much confidence um, when I needed it over the past few months, listening to you and your other 
um, guests. So anything I can do to pay that forward, then I'm honored. Oh, another another warrior designer. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. We all are. Yay. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community. If you love what we do, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast and rating our efforts. Remember, you can be a part of the podcast by sharing your comments, ideas, and questions via the BOD hotline at 416-780-9187, extension 107, or by sending an MP3 file to info at businessofdesign.com. And when you're ready to transform your business and your life, sign up for a monthly or annual membership. Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today. Start today.